Welcome to the Ember Podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us today as we gather together to wrestle with the ways that these ancient texts collide with our everyday lives as 21st century people. Using art, music, and the world around us as our guide, we hope to breathe new life into these texts and that our conversations spark as much curiosity and creativity for you as they do for us. Hi, I'm Jeremy Grafe, and I'm one of the leaders at Ember Faith Community. Hi, I'm Allison Spooner, and I'm the pastor at Faith Emmanuel and Hope Presbyterian Churches. Hi, I'm Kelsey Wallace, and I'm a PhD candidate at Drew University. For this season of the Ember Podcast, we're talking about the Book of Revelation. Whether you're a Christian or not, we hope you'll join us in exploring how the apocalyptic poetry in the Book of Revelation challenges power structures, helps us to look at the way we use power, and invites us to resist oppression. This is especially relevant for Christians who are called to witness to God's grace, but we hope the Ember Podcast can help spark meaningful conversations for people who have other beliefs as well. Thanks for tuning in. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out, as with a voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature call out, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out, Come! I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a So today we're talking about Revelation chapter 6, and this is a chapter where things start to really get ugly. Um and really get uncomfortable and violent and feel a little less like good news. Um, So there's a lot going on here. Um, I think it makes sense for us to kind of start with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which show up for the first time in this chapter. Yeah, it's kind of one of the images that gets grabbed by popular culture a lot and often not really... It's almost like it's out of context. Yeah. So. It's like the all-purpose four horsemen. Yeah. You want to be a harbinger of doom, roll out a horseman. Yeah. We even, not even in specifically like in TV shows or books, but we talk about the four horsemen in everyday life, like comparing something that happened like a bad thunderstorm or a snowstorm being like, oh, it's like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um. Which is almost comical that we do that because it is not at all like the four <laughs> horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, in fact, that is a bad thunderstorm is much, much more tolerable than what is happening in this chapter. This is kind of the beginning of when we need to start looking at the question, if Revelation is good news, for whom is it good news? Because mm. by the end of this chapter... People are asking to have the mountains fall on them, to hide them from everything that's happening. I think maybe one of the most painful parts of this chapter for me um, is the opening of the fifth seal. 
and you get under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. And their question is, when when are you going to avenge us? And the answer is, you have to wait because your number's not complete. Like, there will be more martyrs. There will be more people persecuted and killed for their faith and their testimony. Um, we've talked a little bit about witness so far, but I don't think we've quite touched on the idea that witnessing is not a passive act. I think it's easy in, in modern society to think about witnessing to something as, you know, you tell your story, you give your testimony, and it kind of is received, and people are like, okay, that's your story. Thanks for sharing. There's no threat. There's no, I mean, you're being vulnerable, and that's a that's a kind of, you know, that can feel threatening at times, but this is not something that at least where we live in this part of the world that I'm likely to get killed for if I profess myself to be a Christian and or to share the gospel with someone. There are parts of the world today where this is still the case, that being a Christian openly and overtly can get you killed. Right. I think, I mean, also along those same lines, one of the questions that came up when we talked about this um, in our service was, you know, how many? <laughs> how many have to be killed? And it, it seems like an arbitrary number, almost. Why why are we waiting? Why is there this time of just suffering? Um, I think the request to be avenged, like, when are you going to avenge me? Like, um, I imagine being a member of one of those communities and, and having your friends and neighbors being murdered. Like, how must that feel? Um, and wouldn't you call for revenge or to be avenged um yeah. I, to me that reads as this very very deep desire and it's one that i think it's easy to condemn like oh why would you ask god for revenge when you're sitting in a place of comfort but that that's a really visceral deep kind of pain and where that request is coming from is people who are experiencing loss and oppression yeah and, well, in the context of the story, of the narrative, it's people who have already been killed, probably right. brutally. There's so many layers to this that each layer brings kind of this fresh wave of kind of pain and that kind of feeling in your gut that just is, like, awful. You know, to, our, to the question that Jeremy posed, for whom is this good news? Um, in a sense, the opening of the seals is good news for these martyrs. Um, you know, they are already in a position of such suffering that the idea that there is a limited number of seals that are being opened and that there is something happening, I, I think that's, for them, perhaps, um, a sign that, you know, the, an the answer to the question, how long, oh Lord, they will soon be able to answer. Well, it's significant that after the martyrs cry out, they're each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Mm. So this kind of idea about like resting from their labors, but spoiler alert for later, white robes matter a whole lot in terms of like what your place is at the end of everything when the world has completely changed and God has instituted the new Jerusalem. So we're already getting little hints that like the world is kind of being brought to a time of trial but at the end of it there's something else waiting 
And it's not just the people of the world. I mean, this is really the first instance that you get that really strong undoing imagery. Like the sky rolls up like a scroll. Um, and the sun became black as sackcloth and the moon like blood. There's earthquakes. The stars fall to the earth. Um, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So you get this idea that things are starting to deteriorate and kind of fall apart on a massive scale. And and like before, when the creature, all the creatures of the earth were worshipping, everything about the earth is beginning to unravel, too. Yeah, you had mentioned when we talked about that, uh, it hearkening back to the Genesis creation story. And I see that here again, too, rather than, you know, whereas the beginning of Genesis starts with God speaking things into existence, now we have these seals being opened and these horsemen being released that are that are causing things to to crumble to the return of that sort of chaos um rather than the coming of order in the genesis story it's a movement towards chaos uh, on a cosmological scale um and it kind of is grouped almost in a similar way like you get in genesis in the beginning you get the placement as of the two great lights in the sky, one to rule the day and one to rule the night, and you get the stars being placed, like, in one move, and here they are being pretty well undone in one move as well. Um, And I think the magnitude of this cannot be overstated. And I think so often in pop culture we get this feeling that it's like, okay, who's going to heaven and who's going to hell? Like, that's really what Revelation is about. And it misses so much of what the book is really trying to do. Yeah, it's not, it's by no means just about humanity. Yeah, that, and, <laughs> and I mean, when you talk about, when we get to the talking about the, how people are separated, it's not even a one-for-one kind of thing. It's really hard to tell what's going on yeah. um, when we come to that. Well, yeah, and it seems like even though there's another spoiler, we're going to hear how some groups seem like they have a measure of protection. There's also the intimation that they're going to be subjected to the same trials, like kind of like the righteous and the corrupt are being subjected to the same cataclysms. Right. Which is, I mean, there's echoes of that in other parts of the scripture as well. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's this idea that God makes the sun to shine upon the righteous and the unrighteous and the rain falls on the wicked and the good. I think that really comes through in Revelation. And the, I mean, as we talked about before, we talked about um, this this section kind of bringing back to Genesis, but the four horsemen kind of rings back to Zechariah, and in Zechariah, the horse there's horsemen or that patrol the earth and kind of represents the four spirits of heaven. So here's another instance where we have John, the author of um, Revelation, drawing on this knowledge, um, this like common knowledge that the hearers of and readers of this text would be familiar with in its original context. Um, Like we said before, he never really quotes it directly, but these themes aren't there by accident. So we talked about how the four horsemen show up in our TV shows and shows, uh, but let's talk a little bit about how they show up here because they represent specific things. They're given specific colors and specific sort of um, purviews, uh, so to speak. So the first one is a white horse that has a bow. And a crown. And a crown, yeah. Um, And it's conquering. 
uh, which we talked about that word earlier when we mm-hmm. talked about the letters to the churches mm-hmm. um, and sort of contrasted that with, you know, Christ's conquering versus what we think of as conquering in mm-hmm. in the world. And then our second rider has a bright red horse. And this rider is permitted to take peace from the earth. And he is a great sword. You know, when we talk about... It, this makes me think about peace and the difference between peace and law and order. Um, and how there there's a distinction, I think, between true peace, like shalom peace, where everything really is in harmony versus uh, keeping public order, where very often things are not just and there are groups who are oppressed um, and yet there is a certain segment of the population that enjoys a measure of security and so that wants to be upheld. So I kind of wonder how that fits with this rider taking peace from the earth, uh, almost exposing um, the dark underbelly of of law and order and and the reason given is so that people would slaughter one another i mean when you use the word security even that implies to me threat like peace peace and peace true peace is harmony and is reconciliation and is a freedom in a way and law and order security implies that there's a level of protection needed from harm and danger and i think you're right like those are very different things yeah, imagine what would happen, like how many people would be out of jobs if harmony really did happen. I mean, Good point. and just think about how much of our economy comes from things like creating weapons, whether they're for the military or for personal use. And it, it almost doesn't matter, like, how you stand on, like, any issue related to weapons like if you have them like i think what you're saying is really powerful like you don't need them if there's true harmony yeah speaking of our economy (laughs) we'll segue to uh the black horse uh the rider on the black horse which has a pair of scales it's interesting here that it's translated as a pair of scales because elsewhere in the new testament where you find this word um, it's often translated as yoke. Um, in Matthew, it's the yoke of Christ. In other places, it's the kind of burdens that people carry on themselves, the yoke of slavery. Um, so when you think about it in that, right, it adds an, another level of kind of what does the first century economy, second century economy look like? How much does that rest on people being yoked? <laughs> um, and... The fact that it's coupled with this statement about a quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley, um, but don't damage the olive oil on the wine, like, there's a, there's something being said about hunger and food and economics um, in a very real way um, with this, this writer. The bit about the yoke, I mean, so much of what's happening and being undone and so much of the judgment that's being visited upon Babylon later on has to do with people and the world being treated like possessions and as something to be used rather than as something to be cared for and nurtured. 
and respected. Yeah. And when you said, Kelsey, um, in a very real way, I just want to, like, come back to that and be like, it's not a, a reality that's sort of out there in distant heaven, even though this action is actually, we're seeing this from the perspective of heaven. But we're talking about, you know, everyday interactions. We use money probably every day. Um, that's part of our lives, very, a very present part of our lives in the real world. Um, and when you think about having to work a day to get a quart of wheat or yeah. three quarts of barley, um, and you think about hunger and what it would have been like to feed a family, um, even if you're subsistence farming, you got to pay taxes to people. You have to pay tribute to people. Hunger was not something that was kind of abstract to almost everybody. Every kind of everyday person in the ancient world would have wondered, how do I feed myself? Um, and, and to what Jeremy was saying about Babylon, like one of the big critical things that Revelation has to say about Babylon is the amount of luxury um, that they're living in. And when we get there, it'll be interesting to know who's mourning the fall of Babylon because, it, spoiler alert, it's not the everyday people. <laughs> yeah. Just as a side note, uh, Babylon and Rome are sort of the same thing <laughs> uh, when we talk about this. Uh, Babylon is what the text calls it, but often is speaking to the reality of the Roman Empire. I think it is um, kind of striking that the very end of this chapter is fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We talked a lot about power last time and what power and authority might look like when it's wielded by the Lamb. Um, but in this chapter, it is the slaughtered Lamb who holds the power. It is not people who have the authority to carry out these things on one another. And I think one of the major um, scary things about Revelation to me is the way that it's been used by people um, to either otherize or distance groups of people in order to say, well, I'm in and you're out, and that gives me the right to do these awful things. And consistently throughout the book of Revelation, people are never called to take up arms against anybody or never called to enact in any kind of physical way god's justice that that is an act of the lamb and what we are called to do is to witness yeah. and we've already seen that that witnessing is not a passive act but neither is it violent no right yeah, yeah there's it acknowledges that people do do violence but never calls for people to do violence yeah it ultimately puts all of the power and all the agency in god's hands mm-hmm and that's a really hopeful thing yeah. in the in the great arc of you know yeah, in the, the long, universe long vision even <laughs> this this particular text yeah. it's hopeful yeah as we continue to journey through revelation together we invite you to be aware of your reaction to the text if it doesn't sound like good news to you why can you imagine how a passage would be good news for someone and if so how as we work through this text, we want to make sure that we are also in conversation with you, our listeners. So we invite you to reach out to us with questions, comments, 
and we'll be addressing these as we go on in subsequent podcasts. You can send your questions to emberfaithcommunity at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you. The Ember Podcast is a production of Ember Faith Community. Your hosts are Jeremy Grafe, Allison Spooner, and Kelsey Wallace. Music written and performed by Subaltern Project. All rights reserved, 2017.